2: The city is doing absolutely everything we can, and we'll continue to do this work because we're far from mission accomplished.
1: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What does the new ruling against DACA mean for the program? While the Fifth Circuit
3: largely upheld the lower court ruling that, that did find DACA unlawful, Um, The Fifth Circuit will also allow renewals to continue.
1: San Diego is encouraged to save time, money, and commutes with more rapid bus service. And we'll hear from the keynote speaker for this weekend's return of the San Diego Writers Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
4: KPBS On Demand is supported by... UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria is heading toward the middle of his term. His efforts to increase housing continue with new collaborations with the state and county to provide land for development. And the huge project now in its first stages to develop the sports arena site. But the issue of homelessness continues to be San Diego's most visible and difficult problem. It provoked one of the city's celebrities, former NBA star Bill Walton, to openly criticize the mayor and ask him to step aside. Joining me now is Mayor Todd Gloria, and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me, Maureen.
1: Now, Bill Walton has been one of your supporters. Now he says you failed to deliver on your campaign promise to reduce homelessness. What's your response to that criticism?
2: Marie, my office made a statement last week in response to that, but I think our response is what we're doing every single day to transition people off the streets and into housing. What you see in my administration in less than two years is a 38% increase in the amount of shelter beds available in the city of San Diego. Citywide homeless outreach teams working every single day in every corner of the city. And as you mentioned a moment ago, strong efforts to expand the amount of housing, specifically affordable housing, uh, that is available. That outreach that leads to shelters that graduates into housing, that's how we address homelessness. The city is doing absolutely everything we can, and we'll continue to do this work because we're far from mission accomplished. I share the frustrations of many of your listeners and viewers, but rather than throw my hands up and give up on our city, I'm choosing to double down and continue to work in this direction of pushing for the kinds of changes that get people off the streets for good.
1: You know, one way to look at this is the Walton criticism could be dismissed as just one wealthy man's annoyance at having homeless people in his neighborhood. But that would be true if it were not a feeling shared by so many San Diegans right across the city. Do you realize the extent of concern about homelessness? And is homelessness the top priority of your administration?
2: There's no question, Maureen. It is what I spend the vast majority of my time working on And I recognize that we're not where we want to be, but I also want to point out that we have just lived through two of the most difficult years uh, in our country's existence. The pandemic has changed absolutely everything, affected all of us, and that's particularly true of the vulnerable who live on our streets. And We're not back to where we were pre-pandemic. Many of our shelters are still grappling with the echo effects of the pandemic, and we're not where we want to be. Uh, But again, I refuse to give up on our city. I am going to continue to work every single day to work on this issue. And Maureen, in terms of that understanding, that recognition of what other people are feeling, I'm a San Diegan too. I live and work in downtown San Diego. I have never walked out of my home without seeing this problem right in front of my face. Uh, And I choose to, uh, to take that frustration, that anger and channel into things that actually work. More outreach, more shelter, more housing, calling for more change at the state and federal level when it comes to how we deal with our mentally ill and our substance users in our community. Uh, I spend uh, the most amount of my time on this issue because it's our top priority, and I'm not happy with the state of affairs, which is why we're continuing to work to innovate and to expand the offerings we have in our city and to increase enforcement in our communities, as KPBS has reported just this week.
1: You've said that building more affordable housing is an essential part in reducing homelessness, but there's pushback on that too from neighborhoods that don't want to increase density. How do you make your case to people who feel upset about the number of homeless people in their communities, but don't want more housing in their neighborhoods?
2: I think what you're alluding to, Maureen, is the inconsistency in those two positions. You cannot, although it does happen, you cannot be upset about homelessness and then oppose more housing. Those are antithetical positions. And what I do feel is the vast majority, not a vocal minority, but the vast majority of folks recognize that uh, the way to solve homelessness is to provide more housing. And if we uh, present to them the case that it is far better to have folks housed than living on the sidewalk with all the associated costs and expense to taxpayers that come from leaving people on the sidewalk, they tend to embrace this stuff. Our pro- housing policies are generally supported by the majority of San Diegans. That's why we're proceeding with them. It does mean that on a project by project basis, we tend to get some pushback. But what I found over my long career, Maureen, is that while that opposition tends to be vocal when the ideas are suggested, When the projects are completed, the community sees them as the enhancements that we intend them to be, Uh, that that once blighted parking lot is now a beautiful housing complex, that the people who were previously sleeping in the alleyways and on the sidewalks are now housed uh, and in in a more suitable environment. People appreciate that. They simply want to see progress. And that new housing, particularly that affordable housing, is the progress that we all need and want uh, to help solve this crisis.
1: Mayor Gloria, how long do you think your efforts will take to substantially impact the number of unsheltered homeless people in San Diego?
2: Well, Maureen, I always believe in being completely honest with the public, and I can't give you a specific date, in part because this is a very dynamic situation. I have long been engaged in the issue of homelessness. It's what I've spent most of my career working on. And what's unique about our current times is the pandemic the way that that has acutely impacted the homeless population. Another variable that we don't talk enough about is the uh, substance abuse crisis, specifically fentanyl and methamphetamine. That has really supercharged this problem in a way that the city has not previously had to grapple with and that we're still kind of struggling to get our arms wrapped around in concert with our county, state, and federal partners. Uh, That said... The more housing we can construct, the more folks that we can get off the streets. A lot of folks are on the streets, not because of a substance abuse issue or a mental health issue, they simply can't deal with the, gra- the rising rents. You know, Average rental prices in San Diego for a median apartment is north of 26 dollars $2,900 a month. Um, if you're a, a senior on a fixed income, if you're a veteran on a VA pension, uh, you recognize very quickly how you end up on the streets with those kinds of rental prices. If we can continue to advance pro-housing policies in the city, I think we can help address the needs of those who are economically displaced But it is the challenge of those who are severely mentally ill and those who are deep in addiction uh, that will probably take longer, in part because the city doesn't have a mental health department. We don't directly deal with uh, mental illness and substance abuse issues. uh, But we are leaning in on this matter. My recently adopted city budget actually has funding set aside for a city behavioral health officer, as well as conservatorship attorneys in the city attorney's office. This is an effort to recognize that increasingly a part of this equation is mental illness and substance abuse. And rather than ignore that or simply say it's someone else's problem, the city is leaning in to advance solutions to actually address this. But in terms of a timeframe, it's difficult to provide that because I always want to be honest with San Diegans recognizing that we didn't get into this problem overnight, we won't get out of it overnight, but what San Diego's have is my ironclad commitment to keep this at the forefront of the city's agenda because there is no bigger problem than our homelessness crisis right now for San Diego.
1: The city recently approved a new climate action plan that has many ambitious goals, but now the climate action campaign is suing the city over the plan because it claims there's no enforcement mechanism and no funding attached. Should the city come up with a more structured plan that has enforcement and funding to achieve its climate action goals?
2: Well, we are doing that. You know, I well, it's not appropriate to comment on open litigation. I will say that when you look at our recently adopted city budget, we have large investments in the climate action space as well as additional legislative actions that will help us to actually implement it. Uh, we are working uh, with our federal partners, a part of today's conversation uh, was the uh, at the press conference I had this morning was illustrating the dollars we're getting from the state and federal levels of government to help finance things like climate action, uh, water resiliency, uh, and other components of of our efforts to be responsive to the climate. But we are making large investments here. Later this month, we'll announce uh, new policies with regard to municipal buildings and our city's fleet of vehicles to uh, reduce their carbon uh, impacts. Uh, And more is to come. Uh, You know, the climate action plan is measured in five, 10, and 20-year increments. And we uh, are just getting started on this work. So I believe uh, that San Diego is a national leader when it comes to being uh, sustainable and environmentally friendly and tackling the climate crisis. I recognize there are activists uh, who want more action. I tend to agree with them. uh, But to suggest the city is not working on this issue and making dramatic uh, policy and financial investments to address it uh, is incorrect.
1: Now, as you mentioned, you had some good news to share today about an increase in the number of grants San Diego has been awarded this year from federal, state, and other agencies. How much and where is the money going?
2: What we have seen is a 62% increase in grant funding uh, from this year prior, compared to last year. 59 grants awarding close to $229 million to San Diego. We are the eighth largest city in this country, the second largest in California, and we deserve our fair share of state and federal resources. My administration, specifically our government affairs team, have been exceptional at being extremely aggressive in making sure that in Sacramento and Washington, D.C., that those folks know about our needs and that they're giving us the resources to actually do something about it. So that's everything from $150 million from the U.S. Department of Transportation to construct a second port of entry in Otay Mesa to help drive down border wait times and improve air quality in our border region, to $300 million in American Rescue Plan Act uh, that's actually helping us to balance our city's budget and continue to provide uh, neighborhood services as we come out of the pandemic, whether it's investments in our pure water system for water resiliency to our San Diego airport expansion of Terminal 1. What you see is a a flood of dollars coming from Sacramento and Washington, D.C., helping us to stimulate our local economy, put San Diegans to work, and importantly, get our fair share of state and federal resources.
1: Finally, a federal appeals court ruled yesterday that the DACA program is illegal. There will be no changes to the program right now, but that ruling has to have many people in San Diego uneasy. What's your message on San Diego's commitment to DACA and the people who arrived here as kids?
2: Thank you for the question, Maureen, because uh, I think you are right. When these legal rulings come down. It may be academic to you and I, but to many of our neighbors, uh, this is real life. This is their lives. And it sends a message to folks who, uh, as is suggested by the term dreamers, these are folks who know no other life other than life here in the United States. And the suggestion they can go back to a country that they don't know, that they don't have the customs or culture or language for, um, it, just, uh, it doesn't feel particularly American to me. What I would say to those young people uh, who uh, are are probably punched in the gut when it comes to that kind of ruling um, is to have hope, to have faith that. We have seen uh, dark rulings like this in the past and have been able to get past it either through additional court rulings or through legislation. Uh, my hope is that at some point, uh, our federal government will come to its senses and pass comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, as the largest border city in the United States, San Diego sees the failings of our current broken immigration system every single day. Dreamers are just a small portion of that. But you know, at some point, there has to be some level of functionality brought to this dysfunctional system. And what folks have is my commitment as the mayor of the largest border city in the the United States to use this platform to articulate for that uh, change that we so desperately need. Uh, Congress cannot continue its inaction. I recognize it's never likely to have any action before an election, uh, but my hope is that at some point, Republicans and Democrats will understand this country was built by immigrants, uh, and that we need to welcome these folks, particularly these young people who we have educated, who have been a part of our community, and who surely would not be successful if returned to countries that they have no connections to.
1: I've been speaking with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, and Mayor Gloria, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Maureen.
5: As we just heard from Mayor Todd Gloria, the court ruling on the legality of the DACA program has real-life implications for thousands of San Diego residents. An estimated 40,000 DACA-eligible immigrants live in San Diego County. Earlier today, KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis spoke to Jess Hansen, an attorney from the National Immigration Law Center. His first question was about what the Federal Appeals Court decision means legally.
3: So yesterday, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a decision in DACA um, on the merits of DACA. And while the Fifth Circuit largely upheld the lower court ruling that, that did find DACA unlawful, Um, The Fifth Circuit will also allow renewals to continue um, temporarily and has sent the case back down to the district court to consider the new Biden administration's rule. And so for right now, the status quo is the same. People who have DACA continue to have DACA and can continue to renew. Um, But folks who have not been able to access the program um, still cannot.
6: What does it mean for just the mindset of of people who have had DACA and have been in this kind of um, I mean, they have protected status, but for now, there's just this large uncertainty looming over their heads. Like, what? What? It seems like this isn't really adding much clarity to that.
3: That's right on point. Um, folks are tired. Um, you know, individuals who have DACA and who we've heard speak um, speak out since the decision came down yesterday afternoon have expressed exhaustion, anger you know, being burnt out of living between court decision and court decision and living their lives in two year increments. And so folks are really just um, pushing for Congress to act this. You know, it's it's urgent. Congress needs to step up and do something about this. Folks cannot continue to live this way. It's not sustainable. Um, And yeah, the only the only body that can enact a permanent solution is Congress.
6: And you mentioned the kind of Biden's policies. What did his administration do and what is specifically being evaluated about uh, what he did and whether it's, it's legal or feasible?
3: So the Biden administration published a rule that um, the, rule, the goal of the rule was to make DACA um, stronger by putting it into a regulation. Um, But the administration, um, while it's great to try to strengthen DACA, the administration didn't go as far as it could have. Um, So the rule that was published is very, very similar to the 2012 DACA memo. Um, And so what the Fifth Circuit said is there's it's what's called an administrative record. It's basically the entire record that the government considered when they were publishing the rule. Um, The Fifth Circuit sent the case back down to the district court so that the district court could review that record um, and make a decision on the rule in the first instance, because the Fifth Circuit never has, um, the lower court never evaluated the rule. It wasn't out yet at the time um, that the decision went up to the Fifth Circuit. And so while the rule is going to be considered, um, again, just going back to the refrain that the only real solution here is, is
6: congressional action. And I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand, but what is the specific rule that is going to be evaluated now?
3: The rule that is going to be evaluated is the 2022 rule implementing DACA as a regulation. Um, So it was published recently, um, late this summer, and it is very similar to it basically puts the requirements from the 2012 administrative memo into a regulation formally. Um, and the lower court will consider that um, because the um, while the government has argued that it's very similar to DACA, other parties in the case have argued that, you know, the, the government considered over 16,000 comments from individuals who are impacted, from colleges, universities, um, all across the united states there is such strong support for DACA that thousands and thousands of people showed up and made comments in support of this rule and so now the lower court is going to take those comments into consideration
6: so so if, if I'm understanding correctly the rule made daca essentially a memo to a regulation that's' it's kind of changing its status that way
3: That's right. So the original um, pronouncement, you could say, of DACA was um, an executive um, memo, and the rule is putting it into regulations. It it strengthens it by codifying it in the Code of Federal Regulations.
6: It's probably too early to tell, but do we have a timeline of of when the lower court will, will move on this?
3: We don't know exactly when the lower court will rule, but we do have a date of October 31st, which is the date that the DACA rule is set to go into effect. And so while we can't predict what the district court will do, it is likely that we will see movement before the 31st, which is coming up quickly. Um, And so the district court may try to rule before that date so that there's more stability and and, um, folks can know what the status quo is on that date. Um, because if the if the lower court does not rule by that date the rule would go into effect um and so we'll just have to wait and see over the next couple of weeks um to to watch the district court for movement there
6: and what would that mean if the rule went into effect would that open up DACA up to new applicants that currently can't apply
3: no we don't understand um given all of the the court rulings in effect right now um our current understanding is that the status quo will remain in place which is that first-time applicants are unfortunately unable to have their applications processed and decided on um, while renewals can Um, we will just have to wait and see it's very likely that we'll see movement from the courts between now and the 31st um and we'll have a better sense of of what the status quo is um, closer to that time
5: that was kpbs border reporter gustavo solis speaking to jess hansen attorney from the national immigration law center
4: kpbs on demand is supported by the san diego county toyota dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. Jade Hindman is away. The number of migrants hospitalized after falling from the border wall is at a record high. But who picks up the bill when they leave the hospital? It used to be Customs and Border Protection. But KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis followed the money and found that is increasingly not the case.
6: Former President Donald Trump didn't deliver on his 2016 campaign promise to build a new wall covering the entirety of the U.S.-Mexico border. But his administration did succeed in doubling the height of some of the existing portions of the border wall. And though there's little evidence that the higher wall actually slowed illegal border crossings, it has caused a big spike in serious injuries to people who've fallen off the 30-foot wall. UCSD Health received 270 border fall patients last year, 200 more than it did in 2019 when the wall was at a lower height. Dr. J. said is head of UCSD's trauma unit, He says they're getting so many patients from Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, that the hospital now has a special section just for them.
7: We had to open up another ward just to deal with the surge from from the border.
6: Many of these patients require lengthy stays in the ICU and multiple surgeries to repair broken bones. This new reality is putting pressure on hospital resources.
7: As length of stay goes up and the more surgeries that are required, uh, the more expensive things are as well.
6: But who's responsible for picking up the bill? Well, that's where things get a little murky. CBP is responsible for the medical expenses if the patient is in their custody when they're discharged from the hospital. And that was usually the case as recently as 2019 and 2020. Data from UCSD shows that CBP paid for roughly 75% of the patients their agents brought into the hospital in 2019 and 80% of patients in 2020. But staff at the trauma unit saw a shift in 2021.
7: Well, now we notice that they're not Sticking
6: around as much. Doucette is referring to the CBP agents. Beginning in 2021, CBP began keeping far fewer patients in custody. Instead, the agents were increasingly giving them a notice to appear in immigration court and walking away. This change in approach coincided with a new California law that expanded health benefits under the state's taxpayer funded Medi Cal program to undocumented immigrants. Doucette says that by releasing patients from custody, CBP is essentially handing their hospital bills over to California which pays for them with a mix of state and federal funds. CBP's own data backs this up. In the San Diego sector, the federal agency covered the medical expenses of roughly 3,000 patients in the fiscal year 2019-2020. That number dropped to 550 during the first 10 months of the current fiscal year. Meanwhile, the average cost per patient has quadrupled, from $1,500 in fiscal year 2019-2020 to $5,500 in fiscal year 2020-2021. CBP officials would not comment specifically on the reason behind their new approach. Instead, they issued a statement confirming that patients who are not kept in custody receive a notice to appear in immigration court. Meanwhile, the practice is drawing criticism from both sides of the immigration debate. Hans von Spakovsky is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. He's an outspoken critic of CBP's so-called catch-and-release policy, where Border Patrol agents apprehend migrants who cross the border illegally and then let them go with little more than a notice to appear in court.
5: So in essence, they are saying, we're going to release you into the country, and we're just not going to uh, worry about you anymore.
6: Von Spakovsky says that there's a significant risk that migrants will simply not show up to their immigration court hearings and continue to live in the country with no legal status. Pedro Rios is an immigrant rights activist with American Friends Service Committee. He says the taller wall was built specifically to injure people and deter others from crossing illegally. The fact that CBP is not paying for many of the patients is a sign that the federal government is not taking responsibility for the consequences of extending the border wall. In fact,
2: they're leaving the rest of San Diego County, the rest of California, to pay for the injuries that are caused as a result of poorly thought-through enforcement uh, plans such as the border wall that is causing these injuries.
6: Von Spakowski views this as a much larger trend in which local communities end up paying for the federal government's border policies.
5: There are numerous studies that have been done on the costs of this kind of illegal immigration. And and all of those studies show that uh, the vast majority of these costs are paid by local governments, not the federal government.
6: He blames this on what he considers the Biden administration's lax enforcement policies.
1: That story was from KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis, who joins me now. So welcome, Gustavo. Thank you, Maureen. A fall from a 30-foot wall can be devastating.
6: What kinds of injuries are border crossers suffering? Uh, Broken feet, uh, broken legs, uh, hip injuries, back injuries. Some of the most severe injuries are are head trauma-type injuries. And several people have died. I mean, I I spoke uh, during the the process of of reporting. I spoke with uh, Carlos Gonzalez Gutierrez, who is the consul general of the Mexican consulate here in San Diego, He told me there was a 12-day period in August where eight Mexican nationals died trying to cross the border illegally. So, like, think about that, right? Eight people in 12 days died, not all of them from from the wall, the majority of them from the wall. Um, But this is really, in his opinion, a a kind of underreported and crisis that's happening in San Diego right now, just the amount of border deaths happening.
1: And what about aftercare? Falls like that can create long-term disabilities.
6: Yeah. Well, there, there, there's no aftercare. Um, not for this population. I mean, the vast majority of these patients have no money and no insurance. Uh, doctors at UCSD Health, they can't send them to specialists or, or physical therapy. Uh, there's no follow-up appointments because once the patients leave, hospitals really have no way of being in contact with them. And that's assuming they have insurance coverage. So as much as they would like to provide aftercare, Um, they don't. And and you're right about the nature of these injuries. They are long-term injuries, especially for uh, foot fractures. I mean, they require multiple surgeries because of all all the little bones you have in your foot. Uh, Head injuries can last like your your entire life. I mean, I visited, I saw one family uh, from Veracruz. They flew to Tijuana to pick up their adult son who had uh, fallen and hit his head on the wall. The man suffered traumatic head injury to the point where he, he lost cognitive function. Uh, For a while, they didn't know if he would be able to speak. So even though he's in his 20s, he has the mental capacity of a child. That's something the family in Veracruz is going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future. So yeah, these are long-term injuries, and there is no uh, real source for aftercare.
1: Now, one of the migrant advocates you spoke with says the taller wall was built specifically to injure people. What's the basis for that claim?
6: Well, that, that's right. And it wasn't just uh, one activist, that's, that's become the consensus among even academics who follow uh, border enforcement. right? Our federal government's approach to border enforcement for, for years, for decades now, has been one of deterrence. The idea is if you make it so dangerous to cross the border, you will deter people from even trying. Uh, this strategy pushes migrants across into dangerous deserts and mountain crossings. It gives people with no safe options of crossing illegally. Critics of this strategy, which include the, the the folks I talked to, say that it doesn't take into account the level of desperation at the border, right? If migrants are fleeing for their lives, if they think their lives are at jeopardy by staying home, they view a dangerous border crossing as a better alternative to, to staying there. So even though they're aware of the life and death risks, they do a cost-benefit analysis and would rather risk it. So the, the idea of deterrence isn't really helping, even if they know that there's an added risk of of fatal injury.
1: Now, you say in your report a smaller percentage of injured border crossers are being released from San Diego hospitals into CBP's custody. Is that something CBP can decide to change on its own?
6: I imagine CBP has a fair amount of discretion over the policy of, of who they choose to keep in custody and who they don't. I asked and didn't really get a clear answer from them at all. Uh, But I imagine it's a matter of resources and priority as well, right? If CBP has limited resources, they need to prioritize who to keep in custody at the hospital. Doctors and staff at uh, UCSD Health told me that agents tend to prioritize people they've already identified as uh, ringleaders of smuggling networks or people with a history of uh, multiple human uh, smuggling apprehensions or witnesses that they could help, uh, help them down the line. Uh, So it seems like those folks are the ones being kept in custody and the other ones are, are being let go.
1: What would be the point of Customs and Border Protection to sort of change the way it operates to pass hospital bills on to California state funds? Can it afford the increase in these hospital bills caused by the taller wall?
6: Well, to be clear, CBP didn't tell me why they're deciding not to keep patients in custody as often as they used to. Uh, So I can't definitively say that the agency is doing it to save money. But what I can say and what the data tells me is that prices are going up. uh, The number of people at CBP is keeping custody is going down. Independent of what the reason behind CBP's decision is, we know that one impact is that the agency is paying less than it would have if it kept the same amount of patients in custody as it did in previous year. Which is an important point to make, I think, because, like I said before, right, apprehensions along the border at at all-time highs. The amount of people hospitalized from falling off the border wall, also all-time high here in San Diego. So you have these two all-time high numbers, and the only number actually decreasing is the number of people CBP decides to keep in custody.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you.
6: Oh, thank you, Maureen. Appreciate it.
5: Last year, San Diego opened its biggest expansion of public transit in years. The Blue Line Trolley extension is already proving popular for people headed to UC San Diego and University City. But that project was expensive and took a long time to build. A new report from Circulate San Diego argues the region could save time and money and help a lot more people by investing in rapid bus services. Colin Parent, executive director for Circulate San Diego, spoke to KPBS's Andrew Bowen about the recommendations from that report. Here's their conversation.
8: Colin, welcome.
7: Thanks for having
8: me.
5: So what are the components
8: of a truly rapid bus service that you argue for in this report?
7: Yeah, so you know our report uh, Fast Bus uh, that just came out, we're arguing for a variety of things uh, to make the bus go faster. And those things include uh, some very mundane things like bus only lanes or uh, syncing um, the traffic signals to give buses priority. And there's also some other things like making it easier and faster for people to pay their fares when they're boarding the bus.
8: How does the cost of those improvements compare to, say, building a new light rail line like what we just saw on the Blue Line Trolley?
7: Yeah, so they're uh, dramatically less expensive. So we just spent $2 billion uh, extending the Midcoast Trolley, which is a great project. not saying we shouldn't have done it. But uh, it's also true that the, the kinds of projects that we're looking forward to convert existing buses into rapid buses are usually between fi- uh, 50 and 100 million dollars. So just you know, orders of magnitude less expensive, um, and oftentimes being able to serve a similar amount of people. One of the
8: things that you argue for in this report is all-door boarding. So rather than everyone waiting in line to get on the bus in the front door, people could use the back doors as well and maybe save some time as people get on and off the bus. But wouldn't that make it easier for someone to just hop
7: on the bus without
8: paying the fare?
7: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly one of the, the challenges for doing all-door boarding. But we have some pretty uh, easy examples for how to address that. For example, the trolley system uh, currently allows for all-door boarding. People will actually validate their fares before they get on the trolley, and then and then board at, at any of the many the many doors. And the way that we address that is we just have we just have occasional enforcement. So you have people who come in um, and will ask people whether or not they have a current fare, and that's the way that we that we address that to to make sure that the people who are on the the, the
8: system you know belong there. Something you note in this report is that transit agencies like MTS or the North County Transit District can't make these changes entirely on their own. They need the cooperation from city governments. Tell me more about that.
7: Yeah, so you know, the transit agencies like MTS and NCTD, they operate the buses, like the actual vehicles, they pay for the drivers, they decide the routes that they serve on, but they don't actually decide how the streets look. They don't decide whether or not there's a bus-only lane or whether or not the traffic signals are prioritizing the bus. Those are things that the constituent jurisdictions uh, within those transit agencies have decisions over. So if you want to do a a bus-only lane on University Avenue in North Park, you have to get the city of San Diego to to agree to and to allow for that kind of facility.
8: We just saw a big debate over bus-only lanes on Park Boulevard through Balboa Park. And there were a lot of folks that were concerned that if you take away a travel lane that's currently for anybody, a bus or a car, that that will make traffic worse for the people who do drive. What do you say to those skeptics who just aren't convinced that bus only lanes are worth the disruption to the status quo? For some of the
7: routes, uh, there, there probably would be some disruptions to the status quo to, to, to the ordinary car drivers, but that's actually not true for, for a lot of corridors. So you're, you have places like University Avenue or El Cajon Boulevard, which in some places are like six lane highways and uh, right running through the middle of a, of a community and where actually traffic volume has gone down over recent decades. And then those are some of the areas where there are prime opportunities to create more bus only facilities that are very unlikely to make any meaningful impact uh, to, the, to the car drivers who are using it today.
8: SANDAG, our county's transportation planning agency, did include some rapid bus projects in their latest regional transportation plan. But your report says that they're not enough. What more can SANDAG do now?
7: Yeah. So one of the things uh, that was great about that plan is that they did include a lot of um, early action around bus improvements but there's not a lot of specificity about how good those improvements are going to be. There's no commitment to making bus only lanes. There's no commitment to doing um, signal prioritization. And those are things where there, while there is funding and plans to make improvements to certain bus routes, there's no commitment about the, the quality of those improvements. And so those are some things where SANDAG can and should Uh, take their plans, take their commitments, and take them one step further to ensure that the the improvements that they're going to do are really going to be meaningful and help the bus go actually faster. So if investing in bus improvements
8: is a faster and cheaper way to improve the experience of public transit riders,
7: why haven't we done it already? Hey, man, that's a great question. I wish I I had an answer. Uh, You know, no, I mean, part of it's Part of it's because you know the rail lines are kind of sexier; they're more exciting. Uh, they're also, um, and they're also, you know, oftentimes a higher quality experience. There's, you know, me personally, I kind of get, I can get sick on a bus, right? And so I prefer the trolley. Like that's a that's a legitimate uh, preference that a lot of people have. But it's also true that we're never going to be able to build. a a trolley line to replace every single bus line. There just isn't enough space. There isn't enough money. And if we want to be serious about improving transit for people today, uh, for people who are relying on it today, we have to make some different choices about doing the kinds of things we can afford and implement uh, with the amount of resources that we we have and, and, and are able to access. I've been speaking with Colin
8: Parent, Executive Director of Circulate San Diego. And Colin, thank you for joining us.
7: Hey, thanks very much for having me.
4: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
5: I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh, and this is KPBS Midday Edition. This weekend marks the return of the San Diego Writers' Festival, featuring talks with authors and workshops for writers of all kinds. One of the authors appearing is novelist Shilpi Samaya Gowda. Gowda is the best-selling author of three novels, her debut novel Secret Daughter, is now being made into a film by Amazon Studios. Her latest novel is called The Shape of Family. The local author spoke with Jade Hindman about her work.
9: Can you talk about how your latest work, The Shape of Family? I mean, tell us about it and how it connects with your prior work.
10: The Shape of Family is the story of a contemporary bicultural family, Indian and uh, Caucasian-American, who suffer a tragedy, and it leaves them all sort of drifting in different directions. So the story is really about seeking, uh, seeking identity and belonging. Everyone in the novel, all the family members are looking for meaning, whether through work, love, or religion. And ultimately, it's a story of reckoning and reconciliation between and within each family member.
9: Hmm. And you grew up in Toronto, but both you and your novels also have a strong connection to India. And you now live in San Diego. How does the relationship between North America and India influence your writing? Oh, that's a great question.
10: You know, I did grow up in Toronto, in Canada, but my parents were first generation immigrants and all of our family was still back in India and still are actually. So, you know, I really kind of grew up being comfortable, learning to be comfortable in two different worlds there was the world i had at home with my parents where you know the language the food the music everything was indian and then there was the world i encountered at school where i was quite often the only person of color or one of a very small minority and all the norms you know from what people wore to what they ate at home for dinner were very different so i think i kind of learned how to go back and forth between those two worlds and i and i think that dichotomy has played in the stories I'm attracted to. So, you know, all of my novels have an element of Indian culture, Western culture, and how they mesh or sometimes clash.
9: And as you mentioned, your novels deal with issues of identity and belonging, but they also center on very common experiences that families go through. Where do you start when writing a novel?
10: There's usually a scene that will come to mind first. So it's a visual image and it's of a particular character who usually ends up being the protagonist of my novel in some kind of a difficult situation. And then I just sort of start exploring in my mind, well, who is this person? What brought them here? How are they going to get out of the situation? Where are they trying to go? And then I build from that.
9: In addition to writers' talks like yours, this weekend's Writers Festival will be featuring workshops to help aspiring writers. You yourself had a somewhat non traditional journey to becoming a best selling novelist. Tell us about that.
10: So, I studied economics in college, and then I went and got my MBA and worked in finance and marketing in the business world for about a decade. And at some point, my husband had the opportunity to take a new job, which would require us moving across the country. And we were living in San Francisco at the time. I was not thrilled about the idea of moving. I felt like I was in the perfect city. I had a very full life. I had friends and, and work I enjoyed. And I, I really didn't have space for anything new. So when we moved to our new city, Dallas, I suddenly found I had nothing but space and time. I didn't have the same kind of work. I was actually pregnant with my second daughter. And uh, I decided I was going to take some writing classes for fun for the first few months just to sort of get me through the transition. And taking those classes led to me writing the manuscript that ultimately became my first novel. So I hadn't before that taken an English class or a writing class probably since high school. And in my business career, really only wrote bullet points on PowerPoint presentations. So it was definitely a non-traditional path.
9: Was there a specific moment along your journey here where you finally felt like you were a writer?
10: I had finished my, my manuscript and I actually went to a writer's conference and was showing it to professionals in the industry. So agents and editors who, you know, had offered to read the first 15 pages um, of this writer's, uh, aspiring writer's work and offer some professional feedback. So I went into my first meeting and a nonfiction editor, looked at my work and she said to me, have you taken writing classes outside of this, you know, little, this, these little continuing ed (laughs) program that you've been in? And I said, no. And she asked me a couple of other questions that, you know, basically illustrated the fact that I had no pedigree or training for what I was trying to do. And then she said, well, that is surprising, because this is excellent. (laughs) And that was the first, you know, person that was not related to me by blood who had given me positive feedback. And she ultimately introduced me to the person who would become my literary agent.
9: Your first book, Secret Daughter, is being adapted for the screen for Amazon. How has the experience been to see your words be taken off the page and onto the screen? Yes, it's
10: been options. And Priyanka Chopra and Sienna Miller are attached to be the two main stars. So the screenplay is in development, and they're hoping to film in in the second half of 2023. Uh, and it's been really fun for me. I mean, I very much trust the creative team that is taking the project on. We've had many conversations. And, you know, I have a voice in the process. So I think, you know, film is a different, the screen is a different medium. And so things don't neatly translate. They really have to be reinter, a story has to be reinterpreted in order to make the best possible debut in film form. So I'm excited to see what comes out of the process.
9: And what advice do you have for someone who may have the itch to put pen to paper?
10: I think if there is something that is calling you as a potential writer, you should absolutely pursue it. And inspiration and ideas are great. They're probably only about 5% of the process. In my experience, the discipline of writing every day or as close to every day as you can is the most important thing to just honing your craft and rewriting and revising to make your work better. So my best advice is always A, B, C, D, apply bottom to chair daily.
9: (laughs) A, B, C, D. There it is. Shilpi Samaya Gowda will be a keynote speaker at this year's San Diego Writers Festival. She will be appearing this Saturday, October 8th at 11 a.m. in Coronado. For more information, you can visit KPBS.org or SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. And thank you so much for joining us, Shilpi. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
5: That was novelist Shilpi Samaya Gowda speaking with Jade Heinemann.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen, and I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right.